0: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. On today's show, myself, Steve English, Gordon Ritchie and Charlie Hiscott are going to go through the action for MagniCore. And there was certainly a fair bit of action to go through because... On Sunday, Gordo, we saw it all really come to a head. Alvaro, Bautista, Jonathan Ray clashing together in MagniCore. We saw on Saturday, or it's actually Sunday, Sunday morning in the Super Bowl race Bautista clashing with Razgarioglu as well. So all three of the top guys having a bit of contact with each other.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a proper fight. Uh Magna-Cur seems to throw up those controversies, eh? Uh, green paint and things last year. Um but yeah, I don't think we've ever quite seen the like of the fallout after when uh, Bautista and Ray had that coming together, um and one rider accused another rider of deliberate uh trying to knock him off. Um and then the manufacturer getting involved as well. Ducati sent a representative to the Media Scrum, much to her surprise. Um who and basically was there just to put the to, to make that an official you kind know, of complaint to the media. Um, I believe there was some kind of protest at the beginning of it, but we didn't hear anything about it afterwards. So I'm assuming it was either rejected or uh, there was no means of protesting unless you protested the result of the race, which obviously we couldn't because Batista was out anyway. So, uh, yeah, kind of unprecedented, really. Um, And as I say, Magda Cours seems to be one of those places.
0: Yeah, Charlie, obviously, Gordo gets the aftermath of a race hours afterwards whenever he's able to talk to everyone get all the stories lined up and then write his stories you're in a very different situation you're trying to get an immediate reaction before you go off air so what was it like on on Sunday in
2: France? Um, well it was very exciting I have to say I mean I it was uh, I, I was quite surprised that um, Alvaro turned up in Parc Ferme. obviously Ronaldo and Bassani getting on the podium was obviously why he went down there but uh, you know I think I um, think I mean, when i spoke to alvaro straight afterwards he was pretty calm but what he was saying was not very calm i was quite surprised when he was sort of intimating that jonathan actually intentionally went into that race with the intention of putting alvaro on the floor which i just i don't subscribe to that and then um you know to then find out that they uh, you know what these people are like they you know they jump up and down for a bit and then generally they calm down pull themselves together and and come out and speak normally about it but then i was quite surprised to see sam benedetti come out and say what he said i thought that was a bit um i don't know i mean when you look at the stand I think you've got to look at the racing all season which has been ridiculous Do you know what i mean there's been so much rubbing and racing and it's been so fantastic that actually you know okay it was a it was a well dodgy move by jonathan um under you know under normal racing circumstances so for me in the grand scheme of things i didn't think it was actually that bad and i definitely you know, i would I would, um, I'd bet my house on him that Jonathan didn't go in there with the intention of actually putting top, uh, bounties throughout the race. And I think that's the only thing that sort of muddies it a little bit for me is that these people have their spats and they have them on the track and sometimes they have them off the track. But to um, for one rider to accuse another rider of intentionally going into a race and actually trying to put another rider out, I, I find that just a little bit off personally.
0: Yeah, cause Gordo, what we heard in the aftermath whenever the writers were sitting down with the media was Alvaro Bautista basically saying it was clear that this was an intentional move by Ray. He's not a real champion. He took me out in this, in this maneuver. And then Ray obviously saying he's trying to get down the inside. They came together. It wasn't intentional, but this can happen. I thought that the the comparisons to some of the moves we've seen from Johnny in, in the past, I think it was Melandry at Donington one year, Lowe's at herrath, and then this one, they were all a little bit different because turn 13 in Magni corps is an overtaking spot. Everyone's able to do that move lap after lap. And this seemed like one of those instances where Ray was coming down the inside and he was going to leave it to Bautista to almost avoid the crash. Ray's coming down. I can understand Bautista being really aggrieved by it because he loses out in the chance of scoring a podium and uh, some decent points. But I don't think there was any intention for taking out Bautista. It was pretty clear that it was just a clumsy move more
1: than anything else. No, I don't think there was any intention. I just don't see that. It, it, It doesn't work because you're putting yourself at at least as much risk as the other guy. I just don't see it. You know, I don't see how anybody would do that intentionally, especially now that we've got stewards and replays and a million videos to watch even before the end of the race. It Just to say that the deliberate thing seems to not make sense. However, when Johnny went in, I think when he realised that he wasn't going to make it, he knew there was going to be a contact because you can see there was a slight change in his body position, etc. I think once he realised, oh, this isn't going to work and a coming over... I think Johnny maybe braced, knowing that there was going to be a contact, but that contact was with Johnny still moving. They didn't contact going along at the same speed and touching each other. Johnny was still on a going to go past. And that's why I think there was such a hard hit. And that's why Batista ultimately crashed because Johnny was still going faster than him. If they were going around the corner at the same speed and touched, then they'd probably just have, uh, you know, bounced and moved off each other. So, yeah, it looks a bit odd. The whole thing. When you look at the, the incident again, it is a little bit odd, but I don't think anybody at that level ever tries to deliberately do anything that would, because would, it also risks them. And, you know, a 16 world champion, why would he do that? What for? What's he got to gain? Well,
0: I kind of think over the weekend, we did see quite a bit of this from Jonathan, where it's almost like it's an inability to accept what's happening this season. The Kawasaki, I think we got another clear example this weekend, Charlie, where the Kawasaki stacks up in terms of. If you're looking for a bike out there right now, Cow is third, maybe even fourth on the list for a lot of riders given what's going to happen going forward in the next few years. And I think this is one of the things where Ray needs to almost accept that he can't make up for the shortcomings of this bike week in, week out. We saw it in race one, Toprak's getting away at the, at the, at the front of the field. Johnny pushes too hard, he makes a small mistake, he drags, he said he dragged a sensor across the curbs and that upset the bike through the last corner in, in Magny. But he's pushing that hard because he knows he can't afford to give up any ground to Top Rack. In this race, we he saw that he had an opportunity to get through. He was going to take it. It's not so much the calculated... Ray that we saw, say, 2016, 17, 18. This is now a no-holds-barred Ray, like what we've seen him have to do up against Top Rack time and time again. But whenever we saw it in Magny core the disadvantage that he was at the top rack was at for a lot of it as well compared to Bautista and the Ducati was pretty clear to see it. Like when they came through the kink at turn four, it just looked like Bautista had an extra gear and it was the same with Rinaldi, Bassani, whoever you wanted to look at as well. It wasn't just Alvaro that had that advantage. That was a pretty clear Ducati advantage, even if Alvaro was the one that over a full lap, a full race could make that advantage into more.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I mean, I think they're all getting, I think everybody's getting a bit frustrated with the Ducati and the speed of it. But at the end of the day, you know um top rack won two races this weekend and he and he won a fair scrap in the super bowl race so i don't think you can like i mean we'd all like to see the ducati peg back just a little bit you know would be would be perfect i mean alvaro nearly ran into the back of um top Rack going up the hill He, you know we all saw he had to really he didn't just have to roll slightly he had to shut off to stop himself going into backwards so there's a big there's a big difference there um, but at the same time, I and mean, I don't want to, I don't want to defend Jonathan or anything, but he's also, I think you have to remember that he's also the master of, you know, w- with what happened with Bautista in 2019, he's the master of playing the long game. And he has had to settle for a fair, you know, if you look back through his results at the moment, he's had a fair, you know, a couple of fourths, a third, a second. So I think that he is still playing the long game. And I think that obviously he, he was under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of passion involved in, in Magnet Corps and he knows that, you know, it's so tight. He has to give it death, which is great for us. But I think it was probably okay. It was it was a mistake and nothing more in it. And the outcome was obviously, you know, probably didn't match the crime that Jonathan did. I mean, that's how I see it. I don't want to defend Jonathan. I don't want to defend either of them. But it looked to me like it was a racing incident and nothing else.
1: Yeah. And I think also, um, as we can see from bringing that thing about the Dakai performance into it, that's the place that Jonathan or back and anybody has to pass because then he's got a lot of twisty bits that he, the Ducati won't catch back up to him immediately. If you're going to try and get away, you have to do that. And Johnny did say that he really wanted to to get past Batista to get to top rack to make sure he didn't get away. So that's why he tried to move as early as he did instead of waiting two or three laps, because maybe then his chance to catch anybody else was, was gone. Or he had to try and get out in, in, as far in front as he could himself because he knows he's got certain other disadvantages. So everybody would have to try and make that pass where he did. So I think he was probably just a bit too over eager. He obviously made a mistake, a misjudgment, call it what you will. Um, but yeah, it, it's I can see why Ducati are annoyed. I can see completely why they're annoyed, not just because of the consequence, but because it did seem that once, once that move was made, there was going to be some contact. Where I think you have to then get into the realms of mm, thinking about it more is to say it's deliberate where, as I say, that's that's the big thing. It's not that we're talking about this incident here. To me, the great controversy is the fact that that, that they've taken it as an absolute deliberate thing. It's like it's a tactic to keep Bautista back, is what Ducati seemed to be saying, and everybody was quite shocked about that, I think.
2: Well, what did you guys... I mean, if I was going to be very ultra-critical about anything, uh, and certainly one of the things that came through speaking to riders afterwards is that, if Jonathan let himself down a bit, it was the way he rejoined after the long lap, long, long lap penalty. Because um, obviously that was a little bit. But you know, whatever you say about it, he, he came on you know in the wrong fashion. I would, have, I think it's probably the fair to say. But what did you think of the penalty, you guys?
1: Um, he could have got a lot worse. I think. I think he could have got a lot worse for that because there was actually for the for the the not going to make it overtake. You know, uh, it just wasn't going to happen. And then, the, and also the consequence to arrival. Um, you know, you can say, well, there's the incident, with the consequence of it. maybe he wouldn't fall off. But I think the nature of, of, of the way he passed, the way he tried to pass, as I said earlier about actually going faster than Alvaro, he didn't touch sideways. They touched with one of them going faster than the other, um, caused the problem. And therefore, that was a bigger misjudgment. You're never, ever going to get the right penalty. But the penalty could have been a lot worse. We saw a two-long lap penalty in the 300 Supersport race for a rider after crashing and knocking out three other riders. So there could have been two long laps. As Jonathan said, the, part of Jonathan's defence was, well, race direction have taken action and issued a penalty, uh, and he's apologised for his actions. But the race direction have had a good look at it and decided that you're going to get a long lap. Um, he you said you could have a double long lap, you could have a... You know, black flagged out the race. There's any number of things they can do stop you for the next race. Well, they they haven't done that. They didn't do that. Um, so Johnny's defence is well, it can't be what they're saying because if they had any inkling of that, obviously that would be a major red card incident, and it would be much worse for Jonathan. Um, we saw Agatha getting penalised for for an action, didn't we? And most for an act for an action they didn't like the long lap, uh, the the coming back on too hard, maybe. But once you're back on the track surface, that's you. You know, maybe you should have waited behind, but uh, you did mention that earlier. And I think at the end of the day, if you're allowed to go racing straight away, you're allowed to go racing straight away. Staying out uh, when he was lapped after in the previous race was maybe something that people weren't keen about because he was actually fighting with one of the Hondas, wasn't he? Which he, a lap behind, you know?
2: You do have to join in a safe fashion though. And he did cut straight between two riders, didn't he? He cut straight in.
1: Well, but it's the next right-hander, wasn't it? It's the next right-hander. He was already on, no?
2: Didn't he come straight in between Reading and um, Locker or something like that?
0: Yeah, he came he came back on track with, with Baz and Baz remonstrates straight away, hand up in the air, looks across at him whenever Loris then bundles him out of the way and it was very clear Loris was just doing payback for that. It's one of those situations where like Gordo, like it's like anything else, you're, you're not wrong when you say when you rejoin the track, you're fighting for position and you're back on the track. Um, I think for me, the biggest issue was this was a messy weekend for Ray. Gordo mentioned it there about race one. He rejoins from the pit stop. He's battling with riders that he's not racing and that's, o- that's okay midway through the race. But in the closing stages of the races, Philip Ertle was saying that he was defending position thinking Ray was behind him when Ray's a lap behind. So he's reacting to someone that's not in a race with him. Vierge had the same situation, lost two positions because Ray came through on him. Like, imagine if the tables were turned and someone's a lap behind Ray and they do this to him, if Top Rack did it, let's say, Ray would be straight away down to the steward's office saying, this is ridiculous. We need to make some, We need to make a stand on this. I think that regardless of the fact that Ray was a lot faster than those guys, when you get to that stage of the race, the last two, three laps, there's a race going on. You're not in it. Get out of the way. He's already learned everything he needs to learn about the tyre selection for the feature length race. I thought this was something that if I was one of the other teams, I would have been upset about that. I thought then what was interesting was the penalty given for the Bautista crash. You could have had it where there's a double long lap penalty. The ride-through penalty that Chan-On-Chu got in Super Sport and Most was there as a as a, as a possible penalty as well. The stewards made their decision. It was one long lap penalty. They're not going to retroactively do anything else after that, regardless of if Ducati protests and, and, and anything else happens, unless there's new evidence brought to light what new evidence was there going to be? So this was one of those things. And it kind of brought us into one of the questions that we got from uh, Tristan Falconer, which was, you know, about penalties like this, what are the other alternatives? And to be honest, Tristan, the alternatives are what we've seen issued, and
2: they weren't issued in this case. I'm, I'm kind of glad that, that it, I don't actually think that, 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 that making the right penalty for the correct crime is sort of neither really here or there for me particularly when you're talking at the about the front three because whether he gets a long lap penalty or a ride through okay basically it means they've pushed him out of the points right out of the big points yeah so and it's more about the fact that he actually got a penalty right which means that they've seen that he think they think that he's committed a crime right that's that's worthy of a penalty whether it's a ride through double long lap, single long lap. fair enough you know arguments yourselves about that but What I do find interesting is that I kind of, I'm kind of, you won't very, very rarely will you hear me compliment the guys in race control, but I kind of like the fact that actually they dealt with it very quickly, long lap penalty, because the next road is is if you're going to argue about that, then you've got to look at what Rinaldi did. You know, because Ronaldi was also definitely sort of out to, to to make a point. You know, I'm not sure whether he kicked out of Jonathan or not, but if you, it, this is a sore road where you're kind of heading down in MotoGP a little bit, where if every overtake's got to be analyzed and deemed whether it was okay or not, then we're going down a bad road for me. And actually, for me, you have to look at the bigger picture, which is that the racing. Those guys are racing so close. They're taking chunks out of each other. We love it when they race it like that. And sometimes these things go wrong. And, you know, that it just happens. It's his sport. They're not sewing. Do you know what I mean? They're not knitting.
1: Yes. No, I, and I couldn't agree more. Um, Jonathan did say that uh, w- when we kept questioning him about the incident and everything else, he said, then what about Ronaldo? He kicked out at me three times and nothing. So, you know, Johnny certainly thinks that Ronaldo had three goes at him. Um, I'm sure he said three. Um, So it was more than the one I saw on TV when he made the pass. He said, what about Ronaldo's hard pass? And he had a kick out at me a couple of times. So And Ronaldo obviously completely denied that. He said, no, 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 it was just uh, I was breaking so hard that my foot came off the foot peg and everything else. When you look at it on video, you think "Mm, that could be deemed by the stewards as a kick out. Or it could be that he just, he was being exactly correct in what he was saying, that his foot came off the foot pig. You could say he kicked out of him. I could see both of those things. It's the same with incident with Johnny. I think Johnny, when he realised what was going to happen, prepped himself for contact, you know, but that's a very different thing from trying to barge into somebody deliberately. But I'm not inside, as Johnny said, you know, I'm inside my helmet. I make the decisions, and I'm telling you that it it was not any intention to hit the guy or anything else; totally unintentional. And Ducati said it was completely intentional. Ronaldo says he didn't kick out at Johnny, and Johnny said that Ronaldo did kick out on. Um, and we've seen some penalties issued, but not others. And then we've already talked about the uh, the way Johnny came back on. It was a very messy. Couldn't agree with you more, Steve. It was a very very messy weekend for Jonathan and Magnicure for. Um, um, whatever the real reason for that is we've, we've touched on it already um, uh, about you know he's under pressure and needs to perform and he can't see Bautista going but who lost at the weekend the only answer to all the questions we're talking about who lost most out of the weekend there Jonathan he's now third and you know so he's, his punishment is he's dropped a position in the championship so that's maybe more significant however Bautista hasn't run away like he looked as what he might do because top back won twice you know, so, yeah, it was an interesting weekend all round.
0: Yeah, Raynaud, Rain, the best part of, what, 50 points behind Bautista, wasn't really able to take advantage of that instant. I think for me, Charlie, the big thing is you don't want to overregulate regulate racing because guess what happens? Accidents can happen. It doesn't mean that there's an apportion of blame all the time. Sometimes there is. And I think that's where it was good to see a penalty issued for Ray. It's very clear that Ray direction felt he was at fault for this. And I think that's pretty clear as day because even though you can have an incident and someone's to blame, it doesn't mean there's a malicious intent. It's not, you know, a deliberate foul like in football pulling someone's jersey back. This is just a tackle that's gone wrong. And I think it's one of those situations where it's easy in hindsight to look at things and think, you know, with a million frames per second what would you do different? You don't have that luxury especially with the way the layout is at Magna Core, where you, you come around that Imola chicane through there it's downhill, you crest over a hill and then you're trying to get back over to the other side of the track. So you're trying to make all these decisions in an instant and that's why we see so many instants at that corner as well. You think about Super Sports Baldessari has that crash with Agatha on the last lap. Loads of moments all the way through the race so I wouldn't uh, think too much of it. But just before we take our first break on today's pod. We had a question in from Ashley on Twitter as well. So at Paddock Pass pod, and uh, it's a bit tongue in cheek, but uh, if... Ducati made the bike slower and it was still faster through the corners than a Kawasaki, a Yamaha or a BMW. Would everyone call for the the uh, Ducati to be using wet weather tires? Is there an agenda against Ducati from the media, from inside the paddock? Or is this a case of you look at what you can see? I think, it, like you said earlier on, Charlie, it's clear as day that there's an advantage for Bautista and Ducati down the straight. But overall, for a full lap, for a full race, top bracket rate, typically over the course of the season have been able to match them but now we come to a series of races where Catalonia Argentina Indonesia Phillip Island they're all going to play really strongly to Bautista and that's when we really get to see potentially the full strength of that Ducati it's very difficult to bet against Bautista right now considering the run of tracks coming up but do you think that there's an anti-Ducati agenda that uh, gets pushed by the
2: media? No, absolutely not. I mean, you can't have an anti Ducati. <laughs> you can't be because Top Rack's winning races and Jonathan, Jonathan won race at the beginning of the season. So that, you know, that would be foolish. It's frustrating. We all get frustrated because we can see that Top Rack and Jonathan have to ride, you know, absolutely at the best of their ability and Alvaro can ride fairly easy and just pass them on the straights. You know, I'm not saying it's easy for Alvaro. He's left to ride the bike and get it around the track, but. He does have a bigger advantage. You know, if you're going to pick one of those three bikes, I'd have the one that, that can literally launch past people on the straights. We all would. But I don't think that um, – I, I think the riders, when they come into Park Fermat, I mean, Jonathan and Top Route, really find it really frustrating. You can see when they come in, they might <clears throat> put a smile on their face for the TV camera, but when they come in and you speak to them, you know, before that, and they're like, oh, my God, can you see it on the TV? And you're like, yeah, you can see it. It's hard. But that's racing, and actually, I, I you know, credit to ducati for building such a fast bike and getting alvaro on it but actually if they were destroying everybody and and also if rinaldi was there i mean rinaldi's won a few races but you know you can't take anything away from alvaro and you can't take anything away from ducati for me so i I don't know i don't know what people think about what the media say about it i don't know i can't comment on that um but uh, i don't think we're anti-ducati at
1: all the the, the, the whole thing about media agendas and everything else is just that's overplayed in the age of Twitter and social media and all that. It's, it's just nonsense. We, any real media person, doesn't care who wins. It doesn't matter who wins to us. We're not on anybody's side whatsoever. That's the whole point. We're there relaying and reporting and finding out the things that people don't say out with their PR machine to the people at home. That's it. And we do it as honestly as we can. That's why you ask those hard questions when you get a microphone in front of people and that's why I sit on Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights thinking, what actually happened today in reality? And then relay it to people. Agenda against Ducati. The Ducati is incredibly fast because the rules of the championship have changed over the years whereby you are using more and more stock things and Ducati understood that and because of the nature of the company they are made a mega, super sports focused bike and the more of them they make and the more special ones they make the more of them they sell. Kawasaki is a, more of a mass producer Yamaha is more of a mass producer they're not making a bike like that the rules that have been brought in by the same people who made BSB very level in a different way because of different budgets and so on have made a very very good job of keeping the championship level when Scott Redding who, how many kilos heavier is Scott or Loris bars or anybody else compared to Alvaro it must be 30 I mean, it's a massive difference to put on a racing motorcycle. Um, wasn't doing quite the same as he was, but it was the same Ducati. So are you going to change it because I've got two small riders? And a very good point you made, Charlie, Ronaldo's not doing what Batista does, so it's still down to the rider. So part of the reason why Alvaro gets so much advantage on the straight is that he understands and uses all his experience to get that bike singing out the corner, maximum grip, in the right gear at the right time, catching the gears at the right time, and any way, thirty always less than everybody else. He's more aerodynamic than a... You know, he's, he flies past people because of all those reasons together. Is the Ducati too fast compared to everyone else? Yes. Has it won the World Championship in 10 years? No. You know, the the, the V-Twin and the V-Four's been around for a while and they haven't won the World Championship. So, is it an anti-Ducati thing? No. Should there be a balance on it to stop it being quite so fast in a straight line? The FIM, Dorna, the people in charge of these things have got every right to do it because it's clearly a a big performance advantage, um, which is what they're supposed to not be doing anymore. But in general, we've still got a close championship, which is what all it really matters is, can every manufacturer, if they're clever enough, turn up with a bike that can win? And the answer to that is yes. Look at what BMW have done. Honda, nearly there. So all the competing manufacturers have, have got the same, basically the same rulebook to go by. Ducati have made an awfully good bike. And with somebody like Bautista, then they can get the results. And he's not making mistakes like he did before. So the rider is not making mistakes like his rivals are. That's it. That's why he's leading the championship.
0: I have to say, I think that there is absolutely no partiality on the Paddock Pass podcast. I think that there is no bias shown on the Paddock Pass podcast, except for when it comes to the fabulous products from Fly Racing. So roll that (laughs) ad, JB.
1: Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible
3: fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 Glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more.
0: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthall Street. And- Gordo, let's, uh, let's kick off part two of the podcast by going straight into probably one of the big things around the paddock this weekend in Magni Corps. Axel Bassani versus Michael Rubin Rinaldi for the second seat at Aruba IT's Ducati squad. The factory Ducati seat. Danilo Petrucci's been talked about it as well. If Petrucci wins the Motor America Championship, the talk is there's a seat in the factory team there for him. It looks for what everything everyone's been told is Ducati don't want... Rinaldi or Ducati Corsa don't want Rinaldi. Aruba.it have spent so much money in Rinaldi's career. They've invested so much in him that for field racing, they really want to keep Rinaldi. The money comes from Aruba. It's not coming from the Ducati factory what's going to tell out at the end of the day? Is it going to be what the manufacturer wants or is it going to be what the man that signs the paychecks wants?
1: Uh, well, race and everything is the man that signs the paychecks. If they can convince the other guys that's the right thing to do. They usually do that by writing the checks. Um, yeah, we, we have a strange set use at the weekend because we all think mm, maybe Bassani's a better bet. You know, ronaldi has been there and, and won, a, won a race to, you know, not really challenging for the championship. Um, maybe not won enough races to keep a factory ride. The guy they want to replace him with is a privateer who long not that long ago wasn't riding super bikes at all. And all of a sudden, he's going to jump on the, the, the factory bike. He hasn't won any races, but he has shown he can compete with the top guys with no fear, very relaxed, very cool, great image, all those things, very going wee guy on the outside. Obviously, all racers are made out of cast iron on the inside. Don't forget that. Um, maybe more marketable than, than Rinaldi um, there's a hundred different things that, reasons why you would want to keep one because he has proven he can be on the podiums and occasionally beat the top guys, very few people do that, um, but he's also not doing anything like the, the number one rider is doing, and you maybe think maybe he should have been doing more after halfway through his second year on the factory bike Where, so Bassani is a good choice yeah, can't argue with it but I'm hearing it's still ninety percent certain that Ronaldi's going to go, and I sat with all the Italians in the media center all weekend and asked all the journalists one by one what they thought. Asked the the, the team, etc. Um, I would say on balance, it's still Ronaldo is the favourite, but I would not expe- not expect any change. Um, I wouldn't expect it to be a shock if Bassani was taken on. Petruchi apparently just is probably going to be too expensive and maybe give them two number one riders, which they maybe don't want. Maybe they want to bring someone in to be a number one rider in a year or two years' time, in which case, maybe they'll give Bassani a go.
2: Yeah, I, I tell you, what I completely agree with all of that. For me, Petrucci is a non-starter for me. I can't see Ducati wanting to give Petrucci a factory rider. He's too old, too big, not his cup of tea. That, that's, that's my opinion. Um, I'm totally with you on, uh, I think that the difference between Rinaldi and Bassani isn't big enough for them to suddenly swap those two around or potentially hoof Rinaldi out and like you said Rinaldi is reasonably consistent he can beat the big guys uh, you know on his day and if Bassani was literally pulling up trees and I'm not saying that he's not doing very very well which he definitely is I just can't see them like me and Steve talked about this over the weekend I can't see them they put such an investment into Rinaldi that they would just hoof him out for someone that's maybe a bit better. If they had someone you know who was really, really you know shining, then maybe. So for me, I, I think that Rinaldi, I'll be surprised if Rinaldi doesn't stay where he is. Although I will just say one thing, and that was when Rinaldi came into Parc Ferme after that second race, he did a really strange thing in that he just sat on his bike, right? for a long time, yeah? Not just, um, you know, I've, I've, done, I've done really well. It was like a long time. It was like a real pregnant pause. It was all, it was like a couple of minutes where he was just stood, sat on his bike, looking down at his tank. Now, if he had just won his first world championship or there was I don't know what was going on inside his helmet. And then when he when he, he took his helmet off and he was walking around the park for a but he was keeping himself alone. Now, I don't know whether he was contemplating the fact that he'd had this massive battle with Bassani and won, or whether he was thinking back to what had happened with Jonathan Ray. But there was definitely, he was he had too much emotion for me, for a guy who'd just come second, because he's come second before, and he's won races before. So there's definitely something going on in his head at the end of that second race in Park Ferme, and I don't know what that was. Even when he came and spoke to me, he was very emotional.
1: Yes, um, he was. he had calmed down um, from the emotion side when he came to talk to us afterwards. And we asked him about it. He said we saw him sitting down, leaning against the, the the placards, kind of crying. You know, very very emotional. And we said, so what's the story here? And he had a very, and I'll give you a very short explanation of that. He came in, sort of unsmiling, to the first of the the press conferences we did on the weekend. And we said, Michael, you was, was something wrong? Was, you know, was smart. And he said, oh, I am now going to have a different approach. I uh, I have I have to be more professional. I have to stop messing around on social media so much. He said, all words to that effect. He said, I am a new, I'm going to have to be a new person, etc." Now, someone somewhere, what what would you take from that? For me, someone somewhere has had a word with him and said, right, son, if you want to keep this, I'll I'll play devil's advocate here. I think someone said to him, if you want to keep that factory do you need to stop larking about social media and smiling all the time, but take it more seriously. You're not winning. And we said, we'll come back to them, all the, media, all the journalists had one question for him about that. And basically he was saying, look, you know, I'm not a nine times world champion like Valentino Rossi. He could afford to muck about, do what he wanted. If you're winning nine championships, you can do what you like. He says, I'm not that guy. You know, I'm not winning races enough, et cetera. So he said, now I'm going to have a different approach and a different feeling and so on. He gets absolute tankings on social media in Italy from Italians. Yeah. I mean, really quite bad. Um, Unfortunately, social media races is occasionally ugly ahead again, um, but he gets a lot of abuse and a lot of stuff for uh, you know from unfortunately from his fellow Italians. It seems mostly um, so that finishing second, beating Bassani uh, after what he did at the beginning of the weekend, was another little kind of insight into he's obviously been told by somebody. In my opinion, he's been he's had the right act read to him. Um, maybe that's the cost of him keeping his factory ride. If we think that's what's going to happen. And him finishing second, think, well, that's a justification for being good enough to stay. Maybe he'd been told, you need to start getting podium, son, to stay there. Uh, you know, and he got a podium, <laughs> you know?
2: You make so, me feel really guilty, Gordo, because I went up to him on the grid on my second um, grid wall, which is like a really hard one because you spoke to everyone. I've got no questions for anybody and I'm sort of bumbling around, trying to think of rubbish to say. And I went up to Room Rinaldi and I said... Um, I said, oh, there's a you know, there's a fair bit of pressure on you at the moment, isn't there? And he was like, Oh, well, you know, no more than usual sort of stuff. And actually, now I play back what I said to him. If you put that into the context of actually he might have had a right or like you like said, he might have had a new ass torn to him at the beginning of the weekend. I now feel a little bit guilty.
0: <laughs> I'd say he was really glad, Charlie, whenever you were able to ask him a question in Park Ferman then as well. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> 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 These are the things that we don't see, but Michael being Michael, will tell we'll talk to you about. You know, I've got a lot of respect for the wee man. You know, he's not Valentino Rossi. But he's come from very little, non-racing family, nothing at all, not well off people. He's had to fight and claw his way to the top for every single thing he's ever had. So it all it does mean more to him. And he said that at the weekend, he said, I come from a normal family. Whenever, you know, everything he gets, he appreciates and every and it's been a harder road for him than other people. And he has kind of got there on talent and ability and so on. Um yeah, so it, it, he he does feel the emotion, and he's Italian. He does feel the emotion of racing more than most people, and certainly shows it more than most people. Maybe that's a weakness that someone's identified, and he's trying to stop. But you know, he maybe he what he read was. what
2: um, maybe he read what Keenan wrote about uh, Chanonchu. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't. Ronaldo
0: wasn't out selling bread in the streets of Turkey, but uh, I think. It's similar it's similar enough because Michael is fourth in the World Championship right now. So as far as I'm concerned, Rinaldi's job isn't to win the championship. I've always said this. When Ducati replaced Chaz Davis with Scott Redding, it was nothing about Rinaldi. Like I said at the time, as long as Ducati win the championship with Reading. They're vindicated for the decision to get rid of Chas and replace him with Rinaldi. When Scott goes and gets replaced by Batista again, it's not about Rinaldi on the second seat. It's about winning the championship. They're in a position to win the championship. Rinaldi's in a position right now to be fourth in the championship, especially whenever you've got tracks coming up. Catalonia, he had two podiums there last year. He goes well there. He goes well in Portimao last year. He had a few top five finishes there. So he's really well placed to do his job. I think if I was Rinaldi, I'd feel very hard changed for getting dropped at the end of this season. And especially whenever there's no proof Bassani is going to do a better job than him as well. So I think that... If I was Ducati, I'd, I've said all along, sign Ronaldo on a one-year contract and then do it where you make your decision after that. When MotoGP rider contracts are up, you get to see what Bautista's like after a full season into a second season, see how that relationship goes as well.
2: Then you also have to look at the, the sort of grand scheme of things. And if you look at all the, the three teammates, Locatelli and Lowe's, you sort of realise that actually you can't, it's quite hard to take Rinaldi in isolation. I think you have to look at the fact that the top three are way ahead. <laughs> and actually the thought, you know, to try and, you know, if Locatelli, Alex Lowe's, Basani, look, at the end of the day, they're in a different li- you know, the top three are in a different league. And actually in the second league, the second tier, if you want to call it that, Rinaldi's leading.
0: Rinaldi's leading. Scott Redding's the form man. I think when you look at Kawasaki with Lowe's, he's been very consistent all the way through the season. He started the season, obviously, the crash in Aragon, a couple of retirements with technical issues. But ever since then, he's pretty much been top six. And the second rider, that's doing your job. Get a few podiums when the opportunities present themselves. See what, see what you can do. Rinaldi's been able to do that. Obviously, the podium at the weekend. Bassani had two podiums, which puts Rinaldi under pressure. There's no doubt about that. But if you're Bassani's manager, are you going to accept a one-year Ducati contract? Absolutely not. If you're Rinaldi's manager, you're going to take that offer and hope that things can make that step forward going into next year. So I think those things are what makes a big difference as well.
1: I've got the perfect solution for Ducati. Well, I won't even charge anybody any money for suggesting it.
0: They do- <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, go go there. Go there. There. whoa, whoa. Stop there. That's not how this works, Gordo. <laughs> That's not how this the works. The perfect
1: solution for them is to do what they did with Chaz and give more factory support to whichever team uh, either Bassani or Ronaldo ends up in next year if they're still on a Ducati. So you have three bikes. You have two real factory bikes and one pretty much factory bike. Now, we know that the bikes at Motorcorsa get are very close to everyone else, but it's, there, those, it's that extra testing, it's that extra development input, it's that extra being in the loop at the beginning of the next stage of development that makes people factory riders. It's resources, it's people, it's engineering. And when Chaz moved, he still kept some of that when he went to go eleven. That is the solution, whether you're thinking of Bassani for the future, whether you're keeping Ronaldi. If you want Ronaldi over there but thinking, well this guy can do good results for us, you keep him with some support in a team that make Motocossa or whoever it is he goes to even even higher, even better. Um that that would be a solution. But again it costs money, resources and everything else, which is what we're really talking about here you know they, they yeah because I think especially when you look at Moto Corsa
0: Gordo like they don't run the same spec as the factory they've got Terminoli a and other things different on the bike as well yeah. so being able to do that makes a lot of sense what doesn't make sense for me is if Ronaldo leaves the factory team he's not on a Ducati next year The what's the point They've shown that they don't have the faith in him. If he leaves the factory team, he leaves Ducati. And where does that leave him going forward? The rumour I heard was that GRT Yamaha was an option for him because it's an Italian team. They've got Nozane on the bike, which has been a waste of time for them. He pays the bills, but at a certain point, that has to just go out the window whenever it's not having a competitive rider. Rinaldi would be a competitive rider on the Yamaha that's the one that makes sense for him as his backup option. And I think that's what you'd end up seeing. If Ronaldo leaves, he goes for something like that. Pachetti's an option as well. Obviously, he he worked he worked for Pachetti as sweeping floors. I think you you wrote in one of the articles, you wrote about Rinaldi at one stage, Gordo, and then he was on the stock 600 bike for them. He was able to work his way up through from that. So a Pacetti bike makes some sense, even though it looks like there's other riders ahead of him in the list for that but I think that if Ronaldo leaves he leaves for good
1: yes uh, that's entirely possible Um, but if you want to keep if you're going to keep Ronaldi, then you should definitely help Bassani more and his team now maybe that's going to not work out because at the end of the day who knows what money and sponsorship the team are relying on they maybe don't want what Ducati bring to them because it's not going to get them the cash they need to go so it would be an increase in resource but it would be a as a holding pattern, if you like, it would work out quite well. Um, but GRT, who hasn't been linked to the GRT, right? And that is all <laughs> completely all depending on whether there is an Asani or no. We understand that the, the set, the almost certainty is a certain Australian's going to go there, you know? So.
0: Yeah it looks almost certain it's going to be Remy Gardner. It would be a good move for Gardner as well. And uh, Charlie, obviously, you work in the MotoGP paddock as well. Do I? You've seen Gardner in the Moto2 class. Well, you're you're present call in a the MotoGP call paddock walk. quite a bit. You I'm know, you're, you're around. Yeah. I've, I've seen you commentating on Gardner last year in Moto2. He was very impressive for Io. This year's been a disaster for him on the KTM. He's one and done in MotoGP. Looks like Superbikes is going to be his option. I think one of the most interesting things for me is Gardner can come in he's a year ahead of the curve for the next batch of MotoGP riders coming in. If he goes to GRT Yamaha, it means that he's in a position for when Locatelli's contract's up to maybe get a factory Yamaha seat, puts him ahead of all the other GP riders that are looking to go to superbikes down the line. Because I know for a fact, Alex Rins was knocking on doors. Paul was knocking on doors before he signed for Gas Gas as well. So those riders are looking at it and saying, you know what, 12 rounds a year, the chance of winning races still being a factory rider earning good money yeah why wouldn't they go with super bikes so for gardner to get in that year ahead could make a big difference for him
2: yeah god we would welcome him with open arms as well wouldn't we i mean he would be a really exciting prospect especially on the grt yamaha or you know if he ended up on locatelli's bike the year after next but um, yeah i think it'd be fantastic if he came in. he was you know obviously absolutely stunning in moto too obviously coming off the back of a you know a crappy season this season not necessarily his fault either um, so he'll be pretty um, motivated to come to World Super Arts. I think it'd be really exciting.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it would be fantastic, especially another top Moto2 guy. It seems to be where we're going to get a lot of our good riders in the future. Um, he's had a year of experience in, in MotoGP, which means he's, he's going to come down in power, you know, so therefore he should hit the hit the, the, the throttle a bit harder when it comes to Superbike uh, he's obviously son of uh, Wayne, you know, there's all sorts of things that make him an attractive proposition um, but the trouble is that, that then, if he does go it's going to change an awful lot for the Superbike riders outside of the paddock who might want to get a ride in that obvious junior team Yamaha thing especially if Nuzana doesn't go so even if Nuzana does go, they're still going to and, and let's assume that Gardner's coming so there's one and Nazani doesn't come, but there's there's one space left. That's it. There's one space. We were talking about maybe two before it was possible. There was going to be two places to come. Um, there is going to be a, a, a GMT ninety four bike, but they are starting out. So you know that might not that you know the GRT bike is obviously a satellite team. It's like the the factory team, but not quite. Whereas you know GMT ninety four is is a different proposition. So. Yeah, it, it does make a difference to who might join the championship from outside, completely outside, as opposed to uh, from, from the other uh, major world championship.
0: Yeah, and the GMT team is a very different kettle of fish because they, even in the super sport class, do everything by themselves. And do you really want the team that struggled to do that in a super sport class jumping onto their super bike? That's what's going to be interesting to see who ends up on that bike next year, unless they get that support that they need. But uh, considering Jules Cluzel still doesn't even have an auto blipper on his bike, even though he's allowed to have it now in the R6. I, I just don't know why you'd view that as being that attractive an option because if you come in and you don't do a really good job, you fall down the order in terms of potential seats in the future. That's why I think for the likes of Taz McKenzie, Brad Ray, even Jake Gagne, Gagne looks like he's going to stay on for another year in America, then his contract's up and then he'll have a decision to make maybe as a as a double or a triple American champion to then come back to world championships if you're Bradley Ray Taz McKenzie you could both be BSB champions by the time you're at the end of this season do either of you want to jump onto a GMT 94 bike just to be on the world stage that's a big question to ask if you're Dominic Aguilar, you know, stepping up from super sports, he's seen that the GMT 94 team can't do as good a job on a 600 as his Tenkade team. Are you going to go onto that bike? Probably not. So for Aguilar, who looks like he's out at Tenkade, it looks like they're going to look for other options next year, maybe a Jorge Navarro or someone like that from Moto2, then where does Agatha go? You know, Pichetti Kawasaki has been talked about as an option. Whether that's on a super bike or a super sport bike still remains to be seen. But, there's a lot of riders trying to shuffle their way in. Baldessari's come on form at the perfect time for contract negotiations as well. So there's loads of things to fall into place. And I think what makes it really interesting is, and Charlie, I think you're really well placed for this because you've been in BSB over the years as well. You've seen BSB at the absolute peak of its powers whenever you had hosts of riders looking to come to world championships that's dried up now. No one's really looking at BSB for that can't miss Superbike prospect because we've seen Agatha, Locatelli, Baldessari, even Krumenacker a few years ago, that's the the pipeline of bringing in Grand Prix riders to the super sport class and then feeding them onto a Superbike, And that means that for any of the BSB riders, it's very difficult to find their place.
2: Uh, I, I know what you're saying, and I think that that's the zeitgeist at the moment is for Moto2 riders. But at the same time, if Bradley Ray or Taz McKenzie did get onto, say, for example, a competitive bike, like a GRT bike, um, I would you know i'd be surprised if they didn't if they weren't you know really competitive and that that could change things what goes on at bsp behind those guys um that's a different that's a completely different argument but i wouldn't have said that um it's quite dried up because i think i mean you look at what bradley Ray did this weekend at snetterton tass is obviously bsp champion and uh, you know and has a fair bit of experience so i think that actually While everybody is looking into Moto2 at the moment, probably because it's a bit more of a sure thing to bring a rider in for Moto2. That doesn't mean to say that actually get Bradley Ray or Taz over here and they're not going to be very competitive straight away or Gagne for that matter.
0: Yeah, but I think when you look at BSB, it's another season where in the Supersport class, Jack Kennedy's won the championship. That's four out of five years. I think the only year he missed it was when he was on a superbike. So there's no one coming through in the 600 class that you're thinking is that next prospect and then you go on to the super bikes brad ray obviously came through the red bull rookies cup a known talent just sort of a bit like rory skinner fell through the cracks and i i've always said is more suitable to the big style grand prix tracks probably same as taz mckenzie as well gordo where you could put them on to Assen, silverstone brands gp they've always been really strong there as opposed to some of the the smaller tracks that you go to in the uk they could come over but when you look at the bsb field and you're looking for all that depth, there isn't that many. And that's because a lot of the young British riders now are are being filtered into European Talent Cup, into the Grand Prix school as much as anything else. And that's only going to continue whenever you've got the Vision Track Academy with Michael Laverty and all that. That's that's going to bring more riders to Europe.
1: Yeah, I think that you have to be careful to separate the competitiveness within BSB with the level that would have to be reached to be competitive in World Superbike the same way that it's a big change from World Superbike to MotoGP in terms of level. Um, and that's where we don't know about BSB because we don't see them enough. We used to have three rounds a year in Britain too. The, the, yeah, there are machinery and technical differences for electronics, but that's actually mostly to make the tyres the last the distance more than anything else. Um and then you see people from World Championship going to BSB and because it's so different, they struggle going there. So, you know, they can struggle going there. Obviously, Leon, when he was in his pump, uh, went back and won. But there's a change in level to go from BSB or anywhere else outside to World Superbike for any other superbike uh, category or any country. Um, and we don't know what that is anymore. And we get very, very few chances to see. Taz did pretty well at Donington, I was quite impressed. But to say that it would be competitive is a question mark. I don't think it's automatic that the best guy is going to go from BSB and kick butt in World Championship. I hope they would. I think they would. And I, I would want to see it and I want a system that, that we get the best guy from BSB and America and everywhere else every year in one of those secondary rides. That's what I would be doing. If I was in top wanting to make the 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 championship as healthy as it can be. Um, So we'll we'll hopefully see.
0: I think it's one of those situations where especially right now when you've got Ray Razgadioglu and Bautista you're scrapping it out for top fives. So it's very difficult as we talked about whenever we were talking about that second group of riders already. If you go into that it's you know, 4th to 14th is as competitive as it gets. So to come in and make that splash is very difficult. Whereas whenever you're Scott Redding coming in on a factory Ducati, you can go out and win races. I don't think that the like, well, Taz McKenzie as it is, if he was to come in next year, he's not on the full factory Yamaha and that makes it more and more difficult as well. Please may I ask a question? No, it's time for an ad break, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, what's up with Locker? Yeah. Do you know what? For, for me, yeah. one of the things that's interesting is, and, and I said this last year on the pod, Laka exceeded expectations to such a big degree last year that what was he going to do this year other than match what he did last year, which would have been very difficult. All those podiums. If he If he won a race this year, I wouldn't be surprised, but I'm also not surprised the way that the season's gone. He started very strong. You know, Aragon and Esteril were really good, but it's gone downhill since then. And I think it's one of those situations where Locke is the rider that he's always been. You know, Super Sport he came in, was fantastic, absolute crest of a wave through that campaign. Jumped onto a super bike last year. The Yamaha's the best bike to jump onto. If you're a rookie, he did a really good job this year. Other riders that were a little bit out of position last year have caught up to him. BMW is more competitive. Honda's more competitive, and you know Locka is where he is. I think he's a he's a top ten rider, not necessarily. The rider that's going to finish on the podium on a regular basis, even if he is fifth in the championship right now, that's coming from the back of those strong results at the start of the year. I think, especially in in Assen as well, he was
2: really good. So hold on, you say so? You, you seem quite positive about. I'm going to have a go. At you now, Steve, Sorry, mate. Hard question coming. So you're pretty positive about Ronaldo, yeah? Um, Locatelli, Locatelli's one point behind him.
0: Yeah. And I, I think I'm positive about Rinaldi because you can take advantage of him as it is right now to sign him on a one year contract and then play the waiting game to see who you're placing with. Ducati's made it perfectly clear they don't have the confidence in Rinaldi. So you're looking for a stopgap measure until you're able to get the rider that and you boom. really want. Yamaha's in a different s- situation because Yamaha have such a group of riders that they can put onto that factory bike and, uh, you know, given you know, who they could put on it, I think that they'll they'll have a big decision to make. Laka's good that he's got that extra year grace as much as anything else yeah. to be able to try and find something for the rest of this season. Yamaha, given what happened with the likes of Vinales in MotoGP, they don't want to go down the route of sacking a factory rider again. So for Locatelli, he's obviously very secure for this year, but for next year, you know, when the decisions come, he needs to really get a lot better results and I think what's been interesting is you've started to hear more and more within the paddock about discontent about his performances when those rumours start to, to emanate from a team and from a manufacturer it's very difficult to, to to swim against that tide and you need good results to do that Locke has just not had the the good result if he can have one good result it could po- probably change things but as it is he's he's just not getting that result right now
1: I think the issue with Locatelli is that he's he's doing well. You, as you say, he's sitting right there, second best of the rest by one point. You know, it's there. His consistency is there, but when you look at his recent results, he's not even right next to the podium. This is this is not the way it should be. You should be getting better when you. Last year was a learning year in which he did extremely well, um, but this year is a kick on year, and it hasn't quite happened. I think maybe there's a. I don't know. And this is a problem. I have hardly spoken to the guy all year. Why? Because he's just slightly anonymous, sometimes not even making the top six press conferences they do after the races. So you don't get a chance to even speak to the guy in the reality of a weekend.
0: It's one of those situations as well. At the start of the season, he was in the top six pretty much all the way through the season. Most went really well. And then you look at Magni Corps, and a bit like with Garret Gurloff. Three top 10 finishes, but it's a little bit anonymous, really. And um, like, obviously, it looks like Gerloff is gone from Yamaha at the end of this season. Looks like Benovo BMW is going to be his landing spot. So he's managed to get a fresh start next year. It'll be interesting to see how that works for him. And just before we, we take... A, a quick break because we've got an interview with Michael Vandermark so a Renthal Street Sessions interview with Michael Vandermark when we come back in the last five minutes of the pod of we're going to very quickly just run through some of the other manufacturers what we saw from Scott Redding for instance on the BMW and the Honda Performance as well but uh, we sat down with Vandermark to hear his thoughts before the start of the weekend obviously his comeback from injury Michael Vandermark joining us on the Paddock Class Podcast. And Mikey, it's good to have you back in World Superbikes. It's been a really tough year for you, but how do you feel physically now
3: before your, your first weekend back since Leicester Hill? I feel all right, but I have the feeling everyone missed me. No, no, no. no. Well, so everyone's just acting it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really I'm happy up. to be back. It's been a really strange year. And um, yeah, even with my injury, I felt... I felt I could race a bike, you know, quite soon, but the doctor said, no, <laughs> just, just don't do it. It's, uh, It was a nasty injury, and even though you feel good, we're not going to take this risk. And uh, now when I'm here, I finally understand it. You know, it's uh, I, now I feel really good and comfortable to ride a bike again.
0: What was more painful the actual injuries sitting at home having to watch the races or sitting at home having to watch the races and listen to me
3: um yeah well i usually switch off commentary because you know it's just it makes me fall asleep but, <laughs> but um you know the injuries itself were uh, the most difficult for me because i just got back from my injury and uh then you, you break another bone and you like you know can't be true because I just just got back on the bike and so that was that was more painful just to have these two injuries back to back and um, everybody asked me like how oh, was it difficult to watch the races and of course sometimes it was difficult to watch the races but. At a certain point, you see the bike improving. You see Scott improving a lot with the bike, grabbing some podiums. So this makes it a bit easier. And, you know, you see, the, you see that uh, the bike is improving. And uh, so that made, made it easier to watch, for sure. And it made me more eager to go back.
0: Obviously, from when you rode the bike last in Estoril to this weekend at Magny-Cours, you've had a test in uh, Catalonia as well. The bike that you rode in Catalonia and that you'll ride for the rest of the season is very different to what you had at the start of the season. Are you able to feel that difference straight away, or were you still
3: trying to get yourself up to speed during the test? Yeah, I was. Is you can't you can't tell, you know, after such a long time. But oh, in the Catalonia test, we had two bikes, so we could test back to back. And and even though I didn't have the the, the best speed yet, I could still feel the differences, and uh, for sure in a positive way. So uh, yeah, uh, even though. The speed wasn't there. I felt the improvements and, you know, my speed will come back as as I ride more and I ride more with the other guys.
0: Obviously, from when you were on the sidelines, you signed a contract to stay for the next couple of years as well. This is always a difficult time for a rider because when you look at your career up to the head, like Yamaha, you stayed there for a lot of years, you knew the bike very well. BMW is a bit different. You did one season and then you had to make sure to commit to the project for the next couple of years as well. Was this an easy decision for you to make?
3: Yeah, because, you know, I when I joined BMW, I knew the bike, it wasn't a winning bike. Uh, it was a project I, I just was I was really interested in and it was good to see the improvements even last year, you know, one race win, even though it was in the wet, but even in the dry, we were improving and, um, you know, I... <laughs> yeah. I joined this project because we want to make a winning bike and I didn't want to quit, you know, so uh, it was nice that BMW came quite early and they wanted me to, to continue with them, so uh, yeah, I never really thought about uh, going somewhere else, I just wanted to, you know, I'm not going to quit this project. Just talking at
0: the season in general because you've obviously st- still been watching everything taking a keen interest in everything but what have you made of the battle at the front of the field Bautista, rasgadi ogle
3: ray really interesting this year I've, we've seen some really nice battles and uh you know i think at the beginning of the season everybody was scared Bautista would do the same as he did a couple of years ago but uh he did now and then but we've seen some different winners and we've seen more close battles for for the podium and yeah, really nice to watch uh, these races, but I think sometimes we what we don't see on TV is the the battle from, let's say, sixth to tenth place, because normally it's a big massive group, and uh, I think the the whole superbike field, you know, is really competitive, and you know the guys at front there are just a little bit too fast now and then for, for all the others. But I think it's uh, it's been a really nice, nice season so far with a lot of battles. Do you think looking back on your
0: career, twenty thirteen, from when you were really full time in the supersport class here to now, we've never really seen it where in super bike, super sport, that we've had such a good depth of field. Because in the super sport class there's ten riders that are all really strong week in, week out. Superbikes obviously anything inside the top ten is actually really hard fought now just inside the top 15 it's like that a lot of times so we've never really had depth like this what do you think of the overall health of the paddock
3: yeah i think it's it's growing you know if we have really exciting exciting races a lot it will you know get a lot more interest from a lot of people and uh, i think you can only see how good the races are if you really come and watch it on on the circuit because on tv you just see most most of the time just the front three guys but the battles just behind them are incredible to watch as well. And it's, it's so good to see that, um, yeah. you know, it's more comp- The field is getting more competitive, but also closer. And, you know, from the outside, you don't always see it. But if you watch it in, in real life, it's, it's really interesting. And, uh, and, and I think, yeah, it will only get better. Yeah, I think that was one of the big things after we saw Top Rack and Johnny crash in Aston. We saw that battle
0: suddenly elevated to a podium spot and it was really interesting. But for you, Mikey, as well, just one last question that obviously this has been a, a tough year for you off the track dealing with your injuries. But you've obviously gone through an awful lot in the last year as well. You've had your first
3: child and you know it's been a it's it's
0: been an action packed year, even if it hasn't been on track.
3: Yeah, well, people, you know, it's of course one of the best things that can happen in your life, but they could have told me how expensive it is, and uh, I need some bonus money, and this year not going really well. <laughs> but, yeah, you yeah, know, well, things... I must say, you know, apart from the injuries, um, we've been really lucky, and I'm really enjoying it, and, you know, uh, even with the team, for example, even last year when the results weren't there, when we were struggling still enjoying it because you know we want to improve we want to win uh we know it's not you're not gonna have a winning bike in one day and um so you know i'm not complaining about anything at this moment yeah,
0: obviously we're talking around the thursday before magni so by the time everyone listens to this they'll be able to see how the first round went but there's still five rounds left for the rest of the year as well so a lot of time to to get yourself up to full speed and fitness before the the winter tests do
3: people even listen to this?
0: There's a few. They like, like to listen to <laughs> Gordo. They don't like to listen to me.
3: <laughs> but yeah, you know, um, yeah, this is the first weekend, so we uh, we have to wait and see what happens. Um, this weekend for me is mainly to stay calm and and focus and don't expect too much. So um, yeah, maybe Monday I call you and take and ask you <laughs> to take this offline. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm not kidding. But uh, yeah, there's a, a lot more races coming. Uh, in Superbug we've got three races in the weekend so uh, I've got a lot of time to you know get back up to speed perfect thanks Mikey yes.
0: welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast as I said there Charlie we're, we're running a little bit quick on time now at the end of this show because we've just heard from Michael Vandermark it was great to have Mikey back this weekend you sat down with him as well on Thursday just to, to chat with him and he was in great spirits all the way through this weekend. Just delighted to be able to get back on track, get back on his bike and see the progress that BMW have made.
2: Yeah, I think I think he was chomping at the bit to get going again. I think it was a case of, um, you know, forcing himself to just ease himself back into it. I mean, when it, 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 he's still quite lame, you know, he's definitely still suffering the effects of an injury, but I think I think his lameness is in walking, not necessarily on the bike. I think he felt I mean, he said he, he felt perfect on the bike, so really nice to have him back. He looked like he was doing a good job of just easing himself back into it, get himself set on the bike, give himself a round or two, and then uh, work out where he was. And he said, you know, I, I asked him a few things about like, you know, is it hard because you've obviously taken the bike. You know, through the first year, then Scott's had to come on, and he's obviously made some changes that seem to be working now. And now you're going to have to pick up where he, where he's brought the bike to. And he was really cool. He was, he was like, well, you know, me and Scott will work together. Do you know what I We get on pretty well. And, you know, there's absolutely no point in us not helping each other out and doing the best that we can because we're motivated to get the bike as good as we can. So, you know what Mikey's like. He's so easygoing, such a nice guy to deal with. I think that, um, I, th- I think that in the next round or two that we'll see him really starting to, he's still a little bit injured, I think. Maybe needs another round or two just to get full fitness.
0: I think what was really interesting, I said it on Friday in commentary that the one thing that a rider always needs they never want but is that first crash after an injury yeah which he had and, yeah. uh, obviously Vandermark mm. had his first crash after his injury in Estoril and broke his leg again so uh, that didn't go too well but what was interesting in Magni Corr was he had his first crash in the Super Bowl session and he immediately jumped up ready to fight Taddy Mercado so that was a good sign to see that he's he's bounced back from that he's ready to make those next steps I'm quite keen to see how he does over the rest of the season because you know he still has six rounds to come back from that injury and then you know we have MagniCore five more so plenty of time for him to get himself back to full fitness learn the bike go into the winter tests and then uh, really be running into next season
1: When I spoke to Michael on fri- uh, Friday he said that he feels fine the team have told him we take it a bit easy but I said by the end of the year will you be back to your best and he unequivocally said yes he said they'll be back in there fighting for the end of the year Um that is that seems realistic as long as his injury heals up enough in time. As long as his injury heals up enough in time.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important thing is that it's not a complicated injury, not the head off his femur. Um, but when you do that, obviously there's an awful lot of tissue damage. You know, there's an awful lot of force involved in making that injury, even that's a very easy repair with three screws up, you know, like a bit of carpentry. But you do do an awful lot of... Um, there's a lot of force involved in an injury like that. And there's a lot of tissue damage. So those things, I think he said it was... Did he say it was ten weeks since he did it? Since he did it, yeah, I think he said it was ten weeks, and he should have been, you know, normal. Normal healing time is like 14, 16 weeks. He's at ten weeks. I think I've probably got that wrong, but he's he's basically a bit ahead of the game. But you know, he still has to wait for you know stuff to settle down. There'll still be inflammation. It will still be sore. So he has to wait until those sort of things come back for his feeling to return. But I think actually, when it when it comes to falling off, he'll feel that actually, you know, the leg is solid. It's not like a really complicated break do you know what I mean it's not like a Marquez arm situation
0: yeah I think for anyone else on the Paddock Pass podcast if we made such a flippant remark about uh surgery and the recovery from it we'd be eaten alive but considering Charlie has got is uh, more machine than man he can get away with that and um I think when you look at the machinery as well BMW's made big steps forward it's been interesting looking at Scott Redding another podium from him he's taken less and less of a reliance on the uh on the Electronics on the bike. He's tried to put it more and more into his control. But what was interesting was I I bumped into him. I was doing the track walk on Thursday and I was asking him how it's going. And he said the biggest thing for him was he needed to realize that until he was beating the other BMW riders, no engineers are going to listen to you. There's other guys faster. That's where the attention goes. Scott became the fastest BMW rider and then he was able to put into practice what he wanted from the bike.
1: That I wanted to make that I wanted to make that exact point because he, he was very clear with that. They to us in his debriefs over the weekend that you know he had to convince them to go his way, and when he did, the results came. Um, I'd also like to it doesn't happen very often at all, but I would like to say I have a little bit of a "told you so" moment because it wasn't that long ago we were sitting talking about is that BMW actually got the stuff to be there, and I was convinced that all the the jigsaw had all the pieces didn't mean they were going to complete the jigsaw. You know, it's not the first time that anybody's arrived with all, theoretically all the parts to make things work, and they don't. But to me, the signs are there. Now, when they won the World Championship, that's they made the big jigsaw. So no, not there yet. But I think they've arrived in a place they could have been a bit earlier um, if other circumstances had been different. But look at the improvement they made. To Moss, we thought it was amazing. But they, the most important thing is they continued it on to Magna Cure. If they went back with this weekend, you could have just said, okay, maybe there's a thing. Well, they did it again this weekend and Scott's finally got his head around an inline four-cylinder, which is a very different thing from any V4 he's ever ridden before.
0: Yeah, as I'm pretty sure that David, Neil and Adam will talk about in the build up to the Aragon MotoGP podcast, the change to the Calix swing arm for BMW made a big difference. Honda are going to be hoping the same in the Grand Prix paddock. But there was a lot of other changes to that bike, Changed the ergonomics on it, change the seating position, made the rider more comfortable and uh, all that's made a big difference. Just very quickly before we finish up Honda in uh, Magny-Cours a really tough weekend once again. Lacone was able to come away with top 10 finishes, but we saw Xavi Vierre on the deck a few times, only 3 points for Vierre. This was this was a, another tough weekend for Honda and I think on the balance of the season, it's very clear Honda's made a lot of progress, but it's not a perfect bike yet, there's still work to be done. Who wants to jump on that grenade?
2: Well, it's not a grenade, but I just think um it, it, it's slightly disappointing I mean they obviously looked like they had a really good test didn't they in, uh, was it in Catalonia a couple of weeks ago so you're kind of kind of hoping for more but I guess um, yeah disappointing really what more can you say I think you'll I think
0: you'll see in Catalonia they're going to be a lot stronger big long straight that bike's going to go well there mm.
1: um, I think so and I hope so I just I want Honda to be in there kicking and fighting as much as anyone else it's such a big important company yeah. um, but Maybe we're back to what I've been saying all year: is that maybe that bike is uh, is going to be five, six, seven bike. It's just its limit. They maybe need to do something different.
0: I think the biggest thing as well is we lost all the running on Friday, so that put Honda in a big back foot. It's a tough track to learn for riders, and Lequona and Vierge had never been there, so we didn't see their full potential. But considering that they had all day Saturday and Sunday, a lot of dry weather running, we didn't see that much from them either. To to give you a lot of hope, but at least for them. It's another it's another impressive weekend whenever you come away with two top 10 finishes for Laquona and you still think, God, Honda need to find something. Because in the past, this would have been a really good result for them as well. So they have clearly made a lot of progress this year whenever you're disappointed with a weekend like that. have to say, for me, I wasn't disappointed with Magna Cor- I thought it delivered in spades. I can't wait to get to Catalonia. Charlie, you've obviously got the Aragon Grand Prix then straight out to Catalonia. Oh, Which one are you looking forward to? I forgot to more? about that. <laughs> <laughs> well I'll tell you what that answers my question about which one you're looking forward to more because I have to say for me going back to work in uh, Magni Corps this week I was excited to fly to France I was looking forward to it. I'm excited to get to Catalonia now as well we've still yeah. got five rounds left for the year Gordo it's it's shaping up really well
1: yeah I think the running is going to be awesome and we're, we're still in that position where I think the features the, the story I wrote on Sunday night was I don't think anybody's going to bet against us going all the way. I think we're going to Australia to decide the championship because even though Bautista should be so far ahead of everybody else, we've seen too many swings. I think we're going to see a few more swings in Fortune before the end of the year, which should end up with a a competition all the way to the final round.
2: Yes, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Someone said, I can't remember who said it, or I can, but I'm not going to say he said it, but they said if Bautista doesn't win the championship on that bike this year, it's going to be really embarrassing. And I've got to be honest with you, I, I subscribe to that. Because I just think look, when you've got that kind of advantage, you, you, you know, he, sh- he should be. And when you look at the tracks we've got coming up, he should win all three races at Barcelona. It, you know, on paper, he should win all three races on Barcelona. Um, Portimao, a bit different. But yeah, looking at Villacombe, Phillip Island, they've got Ducati written all over them. So, um, but top rack's top rack. Jonathan's Jonathan. It's going to be fantastic, that's for sure. But I mean, one of the best best year ever.
0: Yeah, I think that the good thing is, Races aren't decided on paper. And we've seen that again because Magni Corps was supposed to be a tough weekend for Ducati. And instead, Bautista was really impressive all the way through the week. Donington was the same. He was able to to do really good results there. But interestingly, both of those tracks, he had a crash in Donington that was his own fault. He had a crash here in Magnicor that wasn't his fault. Those lost points have left Toprak 31 points behind. We, we we didn't even really touch on it during the course this pod. Toprak had his big crash on Saturday in uh, Magnicor, A very rare mistake for Toprak. Super costly points. And with a change of result on uh, on Saturday, it could have been a very different race for him. So it all builds up nicely for Catalonia. Mm. I can't wait for us.
1: Yeah, I think I think because of what's happened, all the certainties we've had this year haven't been correct. So yes, you look at the forum and think, oh yeah, Batista before the end of the year. And if that all works the way it's supposed to, yeah, I'll have won it before the end of the year, but that hasn't happened. And I don't know if it will happen. There's too many variables this year. There's too many variables and too many other things. Um, I
0: think it's fair to say Gordo the only certainties we have is that after every Superbike round we're getting together to have a chat about that after every MotoGP race you've got David, Neil and Adam talking about everything that's happening there as that season comes closer and closer to the climax and every day during the course of a MotoGP weekend you can get your Paddock Notes show on patreon.com forward slash Podcast. we also have it where if you join on the $10 tier you're eligible for a free coffee mug as well so we've gotten uh, quite a lot of them sent out to our patrons Over the course of the last couple of weeks, Um, Charlie Hiscott is a patron, and uh, he should be getting his coffee mug in the the next month. Gordon Ritchie, unfortunately, sorry, sorry, (laughs) the only money I've ever spent. (laughs) <laughs> unfortunately for Gordon Ritchie he's not a patron and we can't actually get the manufactured for anyone that isn't a patron so uh, Gordo you're going to have to just settle for uh, a few coffee mugs from the Superbike Paddock as Charlie sits back on the next show and drinks his coffee out of a Paddock bass <laughs> podcast mug but uh, boys thanks for joining us as usual big thanks to Jensen for editing this show and for Fly Racing, Rentall Street for supporting the podcast and for everyone listening to the show
1: this episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett.
3: Music is provided by the Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Smooth, Steve. Smooth. Very smooth.
1: That, that was very smooth, Steve. Very smooth. Very smooth.